Am I all right just to move this uh, out of the way? So there we go. Oh. Oh. <laughs> well, it's fantastic to see you all today, and thank you all so very much for the invitation. It was great. To, uh, Simon came and did an away day for us last year, and uh, we kind of sort of uh, uh, forged a little bit of a, a, a friendship through that. And uh, I know Stuart, who's uh, the pastor now at Linfield Evangelical Free Church, he's been here a few times to preach, Stuart Holloway. And uh, I was happy to step down as pastor back in uh, uh, last month and uh, in favour of Stuart coming on as pastor of the church. So we're very blessed in the church to have a young guy, a very young, gifted and talented man such as Stuart and akin to that, a very godly man. And I'm sure you found that when he came here. Well, thanks to all of you for the invitation. It is great. Well, it's... Often be my experience when I've been invited to come to a church and preach that the, the minister of the church has said, oh, you preach on what you like, you know, bring, the, bring whatever you feel God's laid on your heart. Well, that's not quite the case today because Simon told me that uh, he's been going through a series in Romans. And uh, I think I'm right in saying that you're partway through this series. And uh, uh, Simon lent me a book by Andrew Ollerton. Uh, anybody read it? You've read it. Brilliant. Because I found it really helpful and insightful book on uh, Romans, and I have to say I've also I've used Simon's book, um, uh, Ollerton's book rather, but I've also used John Stott's amazing book on Romans because that's a really good theological guide as well. And we're talking about here a church of early believers uh, that was uh, very much living in a pagan society. You can imagine what Rome must have been like at the time. It was an absolute cesspit. And these, the Christians, they'd had this letter that was written by Paul to encourage them. But it was also a longing on Paul's heart because he wanted to come and to uh, uh, share with them personally. And we see that right back in chapter 1 in Romans. And, and it's an important point to make here. And what Paul says, he says, I long to share with you together that we can t- continue to preach the gospel. And you see, that's, it's, that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about the corporate sort of way that each one of us are called to share the gospel. And as Paul says back in Romans 1, that great call that he made, he says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And that, that's an important point to make here because what's been happening prior to uh, the chapter that we're going to look at this morning, which is chapter 10, Paul's been bringing this theological discourse in, in chapters 9, and he'll follow it through in chapter 11, uh, about the Jews and about uh, um, what we call um, um, election. Sorry, I was stumbling from a word there. And when we come to chapter 10, which is what we're going to be looking at in a minute, what I see is Paul bringing an application to the theology that he's brought in in, uh, chapters 9 regarding God's people, Israel, the Jews, and the challenges it throws up to us as to why God chooses some but not others. It's a mystery to us, isn't it? The call for us today to profess our faith in Christ 
and in the proclaiming Christ in our world today. And those are the things that I want to think about this morning. Being chosen, uh, professing our faith, and the proclamation of the gospel in our world today. Well, firstly, it's that topic that we could debate until the cows come home, and we could never find a satisfactory answer to. And that's why God chooses some over others. And Scripture points us to a truth that a lot of things belong exclusively to God. When you go into Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, it says, The secret things, the secret things belong to our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law or the Scriptures. You know, we just have to accept, don't we, that some things, this side of glory, are going to remain a mystery, uh, a mystery to us. And despite our best efforts to try and explain them, they're going to remain a mystery until the day that we enter glory, when everything will be revealed. But what we do know, because we celebrated it last month, is that on that first Christmas morning, God revealed his divine plan to us. And that great divine plan was to rescue us, to rescue us. A plan that goes right back, if you know your scriptures, to Genesis, Genesis 3, to the fall, when Satan convinced Adam and Eve to rebel against God. A dear friend of mine down in Brighton who uh, had a great ministry on the streets, and he had a great sense of humour, he said, brothers and sisters, he said, it wasn't the apple on the tree that was the problem, it was the pear on the ground. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't Paul Young, actually, but it's one of his best mates. <laughs> yes. No, Paul Young. I can tell stories about Paul Young. Yeah. Well, of course, we know that God revealed that plan. And what God said to Satan at that time, when you go back to Genesis 3, is, I'll make enemies of you... And the woman, and your offspring and her descendants, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Well, we know, don't we, from the scriptures that Jesus often challenged the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as to their understanding of the scriptures, how they tended to twist things so that they could look good, rather than them holding on to the belief that because ethnically they belonged to Abraham and that they had the law of Moses, that these guys thought that they were righteous before God. That's what made them righteous. When in fact, just like us, they needed to accept God's Messiah, the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came into the world to save us. The Bible reminds us, of course, doesn't it, that we've all sinned, every single one of us, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and as such, we each, each one of us need rescuing from the consequences of our sinful, rebellious hearts, whether we're Jews or whether we're Gentiles. Jesus is our only hope of salvation. Amen. 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 John 14, Jesus said this. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. How many people in our world today think that they can come to the Lord through all manner of things? It's worrying, isn't it? But that's what the scriptures teach us. Romans 9, 27, Paul quotes some words from Isaiah. 
He says, though the number of Israelites be like the sun by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Only the remnant will be saved. That remnant are the true sons of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Those who God has chosen to belong to him. Those he's made righteous before him through faith. And we might think, what? why? When such a God of love, why would he choose one person over another? But then, of course, we come back to that verse I quoted a minute ago from Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. We see back in Genesis a story that I confess I struggle with. And I've struggled with it ever since I first became a Christian. The story of Jacob and Esau. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? You know, if you know your scriptures, you know that Esau was the older of the two brothers. He should have had the inheritance. And when we look at Jacob, what do we see in Jacob? We see rather a tricky character, don't we? Somebody you wouldn't trust with anybody. And you know, I don't know whether you know this, but his name actually means in Hebrew, he cheats. What a, what a name to have. <laughs> Going for a job, yeah, what's your name? Oh, Jacob. Oh, you cheat, do you? It's okay. <laughs> Yet by grace, what did God do? God chose the younger brother over the older. The rest, they say, is history. Romans 9.15, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Well, just very briefly, when you go into chapter 11, and I'm sure you'll get to that with Simon at some point, Paul will come back to the subject of Israel, to that remnant being saved. But not until he tells us that the full quota of Gentiles will have been saved for glory. And brothers and sisters, you can count yourself amongst those today. Isn't that absolutely wonderful? So after that theological discourse of uh, chapters 9 through to 11, we come, as I said a moment ago, to chapter 10. So if you want to have that in front of you. And to our response to all that God has done on our behalf. Just think of those three words, on our behalf, because God has done so much for us, hasn't he? As undeserving as we are, we've been chosen by an almighty God. Chosen by God. So let's have a quick look then at uh, chapter 10. And first off, we look at verses 1 through to 7. Uh, I've got the NIV in front of me. Is that, that's what you've got there? Is it? Mm-hmm. Stuff. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, he will ascend into heaven, what is to bring, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. I wonder if there's one particular person 
or maybe a group of people that you have a particular burden for and are longing for in your hearts to see them saved, to see them become born again. It's interesting that one of your prayer topics was for our uh, prodigals, our kids who've wandered off. My son worked for a number of years for New Frontiers, the Christian organisation down in Brighton. And then tragedy struck in his life. A best friend of his was killed in a car accident. And of course, all of the angst came out and he's no longer walking with the Lord. And it's awful, isn't it? Because you have that great burden in your heart to see them come back to the Lord because that relationship then would be complete. At the moment, I feel like I've got a son who isn't a son. Does that make sense? (laughs) And I, I say that guardedly because I love him dearly. But that's the thing. So I don't know whether you've got people in your lives who you have a particular burden for. But you can see here pretty clear from chapter 10 that Paul, a man who argues vehemently that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, because through Christ's blood shed off for us on the cross, God has opened up the way for people everywhere to belong to Christ. Because in Christ there is no ethical divide. We see that there in verse 4, don't we? Verse 4, Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. But we know Paul's heritage, don't we? If you go into the, into the letter he wrote to the Philippian uh, church, we can see there how he, he lays down, he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I studied under one of the greatest of all, Gamal. I did everything that I could as a Jew. And yet he has... Set apart by God to preach to the, to the Gentiles. And yet in this man's heart you can sense the longing for his own people, for the Jewish nation. That they may be saved through the grace of God. We see that there with what he says in verse 1, don't we? Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Is that our heart's desire today, that we have people around us who we want to see saved? But the problem was that many of the Jews, as we know through the scriptures, thought that their righteousness came through being descendants of Abraham, having God's law. And sadly, Paul could see this zealousness in the Jews because he had it in his own heart at one time. And it counted for nothing. It counted for nothing. Let me just read some words that, that Paul tells us in Ephesians. This is Ephesians 2, words that you're probably very familiar with. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, you can see there, can't you, that our salvation does not depend on anything we've done. Or, for that matter, any merit that we might think that we have in us. Our salvation is purely an act of God's amazing love, God's amazing grace that he's chosen to pour out on our behalf Come back to those three words again. Our salvation is a wonderful and amazing act of God's love that calls us to do something that the Jews failed to do. See that there in verse 3. 
He says this, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And that's what we are called to do, isn't it? We're called to submit to God's righteousness. See, we can't make ourselves right before God. Many people today think they can, but we know that we can't do that. We can't do it through keeping the law. And as many people think today, by being good people. When I worked at Ofter Friends, I don't know whether Ali would remember a chap, he'd been to prison 63 times. 63 times. And he came into our centre one day and he said, Merv, give me your heart, give me your hand, put your hand on my heart. He said, I'm a good man. (laughs) I said, Tone, good men don't go to prison 63 times, brother. But that's what people think today, isn't it? They think they're good people. They don't go committing murder. They don't go around doing this, that and the other. They do good works. The reality is that there's no one person throughout history, all of history, could ever claim to have perfectly kept God's law, his commandments. But only the one who is the perfect fulfilment of the law. And he's the one that Paul's encouraging us here, whether we're Jew or Gentile, to turn to, what with? Repentant hearts. Because that's what we need to have, isn't it? Repentant hearts. So for the Jews, keeping the law couldn't make them righteous before God. And for us today, although many do some great works in volunteering across the world through all manner of different NGOs, none of these things can ever make us right before a holy God. In fact, Isaiah 64 says this, and it's quite damning when you read it. He says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. It's an awful thing, isn't it? We're only made righteous when we come in faith before the Lord and we admit that we're guilty of sin, that our very lives are unclean, that we are unrighteous people. And in full repentance and in full humility we come to the cross of Jesus because it's only there will all our unrighteousness, all our awful thoughts that we have, The words that we say that hurt and wound people, all of these deeds can be washed away through the precious blood of Christ. And the wonderful thing is, so complete was Christ's work for each one of us on the cross, that when God looks at you and I today, to all who've turned to him in absolute repentance and in faith, what he sees in us is his holy son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I find that utterly amazing, knowing what I'm like. <laughs> that God looks on me and he sees his son. And that's true for you. It's true for every man, woman, boy and girl who submits their hearts and their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ today. So having been made righteous and safe for eternity through the blood of the Lord Jesus, Paul calls on us to profess our faith in Christ. The one who, we come back to those three words, he went to the cross on our behalf. Just look with me at verses 8 through to 13. What does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. 
That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, we've mentioned our families, our sons or daughters, whoever, who are not believers. But what about friends? What about some of our friends? Especially those who perhaps knew us before we became Christians. I wonder if you could remember how they reacted when you confessed to them that Jesus is now your Lord. I remember my cousin, I went to a funeral, which is something you tend to just meet up with cousins and that when you go to funerals. And uh, this cousin of mine says, oh, be careful what you say to Merv, he's caught religion. (laughs) And I can remember saying in quite a loud voice to everybody here, great, I hope it's contagious. (laughs) But because you now confess Christ and you serve him, Many of the things that you used to do, you no longer do. They're no longer part of your lives as born-again people. But what do you say when people challenge you and they ask you what's happened? What suddenly made you, I hate to use the word, become religious? Because our our lives are not religious. We have a faith, which is slightly different. What's made you suddenly want to go to church on a Sunday morning and not be kicking a football around the park or going to the pub or going to the gym or washing the car or doing whatever. And I wonder, can we say with all integrity, as Paul could, that I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus died in order to take my sins away. And I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And as believers, can we make that wonderful profession of faith because of what Paul says here in verse 8. He says, the word is near you. Christ is living in you. He's now living in us by his spirit. Especially if we put our whole old lives, our old sinful lives, if we put them to death on the cross of Jesus. And because God has raised Jesus to life, the power of sin and death has been defeated in us. Isn't that a great thing to think about? The power of sin and death has been defeated. Yes, we'll still sin because we're this side of glory. But because we've been set free from sin, then we've been set free from sin and we've been set free from death. That is absolutely wonderful. And Paul makes this great statement, doesn't he, in verse 9. He says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. I was in the print trade for 30 years and I had a governor in one of the firms I worked for who was a horror. And if you made a mistake... He'd go round, and I won't use the expletive that he used, flipping out, folks, 
It ain't rocket science, is it? <laughs> the gospel isn't rocket science, is it? It really isn't. So no matter how challenging it could be to confess Jesus as Lord among our families and friends, what's more important to us is what Paul says here. And he quotes some words of the Old Testament in verse 11. He says this, Anyone who believes in him, in him will never be put to shame. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So let me ask you, what's more important today if you've got friends who are not Christians? Is it losing face with them or losing face with family? Or having the confidence because we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus to life to proclaim Jesus is Lord, my Lord. Because you see, we never know, do we, when we make a stand for Christ and we confess him as the Lord of our lives, that someone who may be searching, they may be challenged themselves by what you've said to just get that little nudge in their life to call on the name of the Lord for themselves and be saved. You just don't know. You never know. Well, we thought so far today about what it means to be chosen by God, to profess Jesus as Lord, and now, finally... God's call for us to proclaim his name in this world. Just look with me at verses 14 and 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring Good news. Many, many, many years ago now, and it is a long time ago, uh, a minister friend of mine who was a a lovely Scottish uh, minister in the Anglican Church, he suggested to me that uh, he thought that I was probably a a good candidate to go through for ordained ministry in the church. I thought, you must be joking. But he convinced me otherwise. And... Because I was an Anglican, that was the route that I went. And if you know anything about the Anglican Church, it moves slowly. And the whole selection process moved at even slower pace. And it was several years of going through course after course, uh, interview after interview. And finally it culminated in me going to a selection conference at a lovely place in Kent, beautiful place. Three-day selection conference and you never know what or how you're being observed and being grilled by a panel of of, of so-called experts, if you like. (laughs) What I think I found very difficult about that selection conference was that every one of the selectors was an Anglo-Catholic. An Anglo-Catholic and here was me, an evangelical like two repelling magnets (laughs) but the point was it was revealed to me at the end of that conference, well about six weeks after the conference, I eventually got a letter from the Bishop of Chichester telling me that I'd been unsuccessful and I went back to see the uh, Bishop's representative, I never actually met the Bishop, but saw his representative and he said uh, oh they put at the top of this 
Merv's a wonderful guy and he'd be a wonderful asset in ministry, but he's too caring. That's what I was told, I was too caring. But God, I had a friend in Linfield later, who's now in glory, and he used to say that regularly, but God. You know, they were probably right. They were probably right. I probably was a bit too caring at that sort of time. But then I met Paul Young. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't mean that unkindly. (laughs) Paul kind of threw me a lifeline, if you like. And he said, mate, come and work with me on (laughs) antifreeze. No, he said, not work, volunteer. (laughs) Make got any money. (laughs) Anyway, I went to work with Paul. And uh, I worked 10 years on the antifreeze and uh, we built up the work, or the Lord built up the work through me, which was great. And that was fantastic. And as I said, I had great 10 years working with After Fence and I met some lovely people and some lovely folks from this church here. And you've been talking about YWAM. Friday night was YWAM night. They used to descend on us and we'd take them out on the street and which was absolutely wonderful. And you mentioned Caleb, and that name rang a bell with me. I don't know, how old is Caleb? He's 20. Oh, no, no, it can't be the same guy then. Can't be the same guy. I remember, I remember Caleb. Before. You remember Caleb, yeah. do you? Yeah, I, I remember him as well. Yeah. You know, there were some great goals. There was a guy called Jared. Jared? Yes. Jared as well. These were great folks, they really were. And funny enough, one of the girls that came over from YMAM, she was a Canadian girl. I can't remember her surname, do you know? I've been struggling to know. But she, she's married now to um, a guy in Hove who, um, whose dad was a minister. And uh, sadly, his dad's passed away. But uh, I'm trying to remember her name. It'll come to me in a flash <laughs> later. But anyway, I was at Off the Fence for a while and, uh, you know, and I felt at the end of that ten years that I got as far as I felt God was calling me to in that ministry. And I went to work for Brighton and Hove City Mission, an organisation that's been around for well over a hundred years. And through City Mission, I uh, was invited to preach, to preach probably more than I ever did at Off the Fence. And it was practically every other week I was going off to a different church to preach the gospel. And one of those churches was Linfield Evangelical Free Church. And I went there in 2009. And uh, they hadn't had a pastor for a number of years. They'd had two huge interregnums which had virtually imploded the church. 2013 they asked me to do an evangelistic afternoon and I did that. And uh, one of the elders of the church came to me afterwards and he said, I've been asked by the church to invite you to be our pastor. <laughs> Not be done with a feather. <laughs> Too caring. I'd learnt the lesson. I'd learnt the lesson and it was time for God to bring me into ministry. And uh, Ali and I have been in Linfield for 10 years. We've been, I've been ministering in the church for 10 years. I've just stepped back to allow Stuart to come through as pastor I'm 73. I know I don't look it. The makeup's good, isn't it? (laughs) But I feel it. (laughs) But, you know, this is it. God has his way. God has his timing. And this is it, isn't it? 
And the challenge for every one of us today who profess to love those around us as God's people is that we proclaim the crucified, risen Christ ourselves. And I appreciate that's not always easy. Because, you see, what Paul says here in verse 14 and 15 is very relevant to our society today, isn't it? A society that's turned its back on God. You look at it through government, you look at it through education, you look at it in every avenue of life today, God is just dismissed. And his name is nothing more than an expletive today, isn't it? And Paul's question to us is is this. How will a secular world ever come to know Jesus unless we as his people proclaim him as our Lord? And if we always leave it to someone else to proclaim Christ, then, you know, it kind of raises a little bit of a question, doesn't it, over us as to our love and our obedience to Christ. That said... I know that we're not all called to be pastors of a church or called to mission for that, whether it be in this country or abroad. But we are called through the scriptures, firstly, to be salt and light in a world that needs salt and needs the light of Christ. And secondly, we're called to be prepared to give an answer to the hope that we have in Christ And what better way to do that than to give your own personal testimony? We've each got one. May not be huge by other people's standards, but any testimony of God is a testimony. And of course that testimony is all about what God's done on our behalf. That's the bottom line, is it? What God's done on our behalf. It's my belief is as we witness more and more the decline in the church attendance today, that there's a greater need for ordinary folks such as us to be prepared to proclaim Christ in and around us. At the shops, maybe. Perhaps at the gym, if you're somebody that goes to the gym. Perhaps at work, as long as you remember, of course, you're paid to, to work, not to evangelise. But there's always opportunities. There's always opportunities. Well, let me finish today by asking you this very, very personal question. How are your feet? (laughs) How are your feet? Because the Lord says this, verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The good news of salvation is not complicated. It isn't complex theology that we can't understand. Plus, it's universal. Whatever nationality we are, the message is the same. John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Because in a nutshell, the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to save each one of us from the consequences of our sins and to give us a hope for our future. I wonder how many people could say that today. Have they got a hope for their future? We're living in hopeless times, aren't we? Being right before God isn't as the Jews thought through belonging to Abraham, through keeping the law, doing good works, any more than it is for us. 
But as Paul says here, it's through believing that God has acted solely by grace on our behalf. By rescuing us from the consequences of sin. And if you're a Christian here today, and I believe many of you are, one who's responded to the gospel, then with all confidence you can claim what Paul says here in verse 11. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Well, isn't that a message that this world that sees little hope for the future needs to hear? Isn't it a message that is worth you and I proclaiming today in our world? Amen. Amen. Please, it's the word of God. Father, I just want to thank you today that we've been able to look at your word, that we've been able to open that word up, Lord, and see how relevant it is to our lives. And Lord God, today, will you help us to profess you in our own hearts? And will you give us that wonderful love within us for all that you've done on our behalf to proclaim you, the risen Christ? And finally, Lord, thank you that you've chosen each one of us from out of the world to belong to you. For we pray these things in the blessed and the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you so very much.